everyone, and welcome to Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Maddie, and I'm here with Trish. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about Bobby Joe Long. So, Trish, before we get into it, how's your week been? It's been good. Long, long day. Long days. Long quality time with my son. So, it, no, it's good. It's been good. That's good. I did my uh, motorcycle class last week. That's right. You said you were starting that. You said five hours in the yes. saddle? Five hours in the saddle. I could barely walk the next day. My hips and thighs were, yeah, it was not It was not good. It went well. I didn't fall. So that was my number one goal, not to fall, and I didn't. So I was proud Bonus. of myself. But it didn't feel comfortable. How many more hours do you have to do? I have one more session of five hours, and if I do well, then I get my license. Whoa, and then you'll be street legal. Yes, are you getting a motorcycle? You don't have a motorcycle. I do not, no. So, yes, I will be getting one. Okay. Well, good luck. Well, thank you. So, getting into Bobby Geelong, we're in Tampa, Florida, and it is May of 1984. So, big hair all around. Always a good look. And we're most of this is going to take place at Nebraska Avenue. So, it's known as the Strip in Tampa. And it is still existing. I don't know if it's the same scene as it was back in 84, but it was a lot of strip clubs. A lot of sex workers were working in this area, bars, nightclubs. So not a family-friendly destination. No, it's not Disneyland. I wouldn't, although it is about 20 blocks from Bush Gardens. I was looking on Google Maps. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of the scene that we're setting. In May of 1984, Lana Long, who was a 20-year-old exotic dancer at the Sly Fox, was found by two young boys running through a field. They found her nude, face down, and her legs were purposefully spread apart. Her hands were tied behind her back with a cord around her neck, similar to a leash, and she had been raped and strangled. This was three days after her disappearance, so she had gone missing, and this was three days after. Now, no report was ever filed because the only person that would have really filed a report was her boyfriend and I guess they had just had this huge fight right before she went missing and because I guess the way the fight ended it was pretty much he figured she was not coming back home. So at the scene there are tire tracks that are found and they were very unique because when the police took a closer look at the tire tracks there were actually three different tires so it's very unusual because normally you would have at least two sets of two. Right. And not just have an odd tire on there. And there were also red fibers found on Lana and at the scene. Did they know what those red fibers came from at the time? No, at the time they didn't. They could tell that they were nylon fibers, which the first time that I saw this case, it was the forensic files, which is around 25 minutes. And I'm pretty sure that they spent at least 20 minutes talking about red fiber. Well, it's forensic fox. Well, yes, but it was driving me crazy. I was like, there's got to be more to this story than just red fiber. But that's what they were focused on. So they didn't know what it was. They knew it was nylon fibers, but they didn't have anything to connect it to. So like I said, at the time, she was living with her boyfriend, John, and the police suspected him right away because... One, he hadn't reported her missing. And two, we always look at the boyfriend first. It was later found that she had actually been offered a ride on her way home. And once she was in the car, a knife was pulled. And then she was taken to this secluded area when she was raped and strangled. And how did the police figure that out? This was after the fact. This was once they actually caught Bobby Joe Long. So within two weeks, a woman by the name of Michelle Sims was found. So she had turned to prostitution to support an addiction, which now they call this survival sex work and she was also found bound and nude with ligature around her neck 
but her throat had also been slashed and she had blunt force trauma to the head. She had also been sexually assaulted. So he's becoming more aggressive. Yeah. And I'm giving these in the order that they were found, not necessarily the order that they were killed. So some of them, they may be out of order from the time they were taken, but it's how they were found. Yes. This is following the police and how they found the victims. The same tire tracks were found at the scene as well as the red fiber. So they knew right away that they had the same person. And there was also semen found on her clothing. And again, those tire tracks had those the three different tires. It was very distinctive. Shortly after that, Elizabeth Loudenbach was found. And it took a few months for it to be realized that she was victim of the same murderer. So they didn't, it wasn't the same type of victim. She wasn't in sex work. She didn't work at any of these clubs. She worked in a manufacturing plant, but she did live in a mobile home with her parents a few blocks off of the strip. She had stepped out to take a walk, but was never seen again. Her body was found in an advanced state of decomposition, so she had been found much later than when she was actually killed. She was clothed. She wasn't bound. There was no obvious trauma, and they weren't looking for evidence to link her to these other cases because there was nothing evident to it being related. She wasn't posed. There was no DNA. Wasn't strangled. There was no sort of aggressive violence. I don't even know. I'm not positive that she was sexually assaulted. And if she was, I think she was in such a state of decomp that they couldn't even tell for sure if she had been sexually assaulted. Because she was in a state of decomp, is it theorized that she may be one of the earlier victims? Not the earliest, but one of the earlier ones. And keep in mind, as we talk about these victims, this all happened between March and and October of 1984. And as we'll see, we're just going to keep going through a list. There, There's so many. So at first, they were looking at her boyfriend mm-hmm. because we always go to the boyfriend. But then eventually, as they came further into the investigation, they found the same red fibers that were on Lana and Michelle. Next, Chanel Williams, who was an 18-year-old African-American, had been found dumped on a roadside. She was not bound. She had suffered a gunshot wound to the head. She had her clothing tied up in knots beside her, which was similar to the way Lana Long was found. The same red fibers were found, and she was also a sex worker on the same strip. Next, Vicki Marie Elliott, who worked as a waitress in a hotel on the strip. She was planning to return to Michigan, which is where she came from, to be a paramedic. She had vanished on September 7th. She had asked a neighbor for a ride to work, but by the time that she had showed up, they said she was gone and nobody had heard from her since. Her body wasn't found until November, and the scissors that she carried around with her for protection were found laying beside her. So it sounds like most of these victims, at least up to this point, snatched off the street if they weren't sex workers going willingly into a car. Right. What we'll see it so... We obviously know at this point that Bobby Joe Long is the killer, and he was a person that lived in that area. So he may have been familiar to these people, to these women, even if it wasn't through being a sex worker or being in these clubs. And I know that he was a patron at the Sly Fox where Lana Long was a dancer. Also, it's the 80s. So if you're walking and say it's raining or something and a guy comes up, he doesn't look as frightening as he is and he offers you a ride, there are a lot of people, especially at that time, that would just get in the car. Yeah. And he was a snatcher. We'll see that a little bit. So when they went back to search Vicky's apartment, the police checked and they found the airline ticket to Michigan lying on her bed. Oh, she was so close to leaving. Yeah. She was so close. And she was going to become a paramedic and, and try to start this whole new life for herself. It's just, it's 
devastating. Next, we had Karen Disfriend, who was a 28-year-old survival sex worker, and she was found nude and strangled in a deserted area. And again, the same fibers were found. Were the same tire tracks found at her scene? I'm not 100%. I don't know if it was an area where you could get good tracks, because where Chanel and Lana were found, it was fields where there was a lot of mud and, and sand where you could actually get the tire tracks. I'm not sure in Karen's case if that, if that was it. So at this point, we've had six women, four of which worked in clubs or were sex workers that have been killed. And needless to say, the girls on the strip were terrified. Police started checking with club owners and sex workers asking about suspicious people. But pretty much the answer that they got was, well, we're in a strip club. Pretty much everybody is suspicious at this point. So it really didn't give them any leads. On October 31st, Kimberly Hops was found. She was believed to be a sex worker as well and was last seen near Nebraska Avenue. She had been strangled and by the time she was found, she was mummified. Now we get to the only sad but shining moment of the story. So on November 27th, Lisa McVeigh was leaving Krispy Kreme where she worked and she was on her bike and it was around 2 a.m. She was riding and she heard a horn honking, but she kept going, not thinking that it had anything to do with her. She gets in front of a church as she's going down the street and she sees a car in the parking lot with its lights on but she keeps going a guy comes out knocks her off her bike grabs her by her hair forcing her into the car he blindfolds her binds her hands and reclines her seat back he took her to an apartment and raped her for over 26 hours in the car ride he also had i believe a gun and a knife throughout the whole ordeal she placates everything that he asks. Now, Lisa had been enduring abuse from her grandmother's boyfriend for years after having moved in with her grandmother to avoid abuse in her mother's home. She had written a suicide note the night before that she had left on her nightstand. And she says that now that she was being taken, she realized that she finally wanted to live. She used all of those survival instincts from years of abuse to try and survive the situation. And pretty much the entire time, she said he would go back and forth. So one minute he would be this caring boyfriend type. Next second, he would be violent and screaming and attacking her. So at one point, Lisa recalls a conversation where she's trying to understand why he's doing this. And his answer is that he's getting back at women for a bad breakup. Around 3 a.m., he gets her dressed and says, what should I do with you? And she says, well, you really seem like a nice guy. I could be your girlfriend. He says, no, I can't do that. Where do you live? I'll drop you off there. So she gives him an area not too far, but not too close to her house. He forces her back into the car, drives her, and at some point stops, leaves her, and drives away. Now she... Go ahead. Is she the only living victim that he came across that we know of? That we know of and with this MO, because we'll get to there's there was previous attacks, but that didn't have the same MO as these attacks on women. Okay, so he's in his escalated state of murdering women. Yes. And she may be the only one during this phase that lived. Correct. Yes. Once he started killing his victims, she was the only one that had survived at that point. So she runs back home and she tries to tell her grandmother what happened, but her grandmother pretty much says, no, you're a liar. Where have you been for the last day? And doesn't believe her. Finally, when she gets to the police, she's able to give so many details. She nailed it all the way. She had been the entire time she was with him observing every single thing that she could to make sure that they would find this guy. And even if she didn't live, she had asked him to go to the bathroom in the apartment and she had been putting her fingerprints everywhere in the bathroom because she said even if she didn't make it, she wanted them to know that she had been there. How smart. And she's 17. She's 17. In the 80s. Yes. 
you know, not like nowadays where kids can read on the internet all these stories and how you should be safe, but this was the 80s. Yeah. She was able to give police details on the car, saying that on the dashboard she saw Magnum written, and there was only one car in existence, one type of car that had that on the dashboard, and that was a Dodge Magnum. So from there, they were able to start to narrow down the list of who this could be. She also had the same red fibers on her as all of the other women. And that's what told the police that this was the same guy that had been committing these murders. Because up until then, there wasn't a true connection to the murders themselves because he had let her go. She was also able to give indications of where the apartment might be. She was able to give landmarks to hotels that she had seen on the road right after leaving the apartment. And when she was also able to tell police that he had stopped at an eighth TM on the way to drop her off. She's a model witness. Yes. And she was purposefully, this wasn't her observing things. This was her purposefully remembering exact details that she could give to the police. On the same day that she was released by Bobby Joe, Virginia Johnson was found. She was 18. There's not a lot of info on her, on her life only that she was seen last seen in the same area, but she was found a little bit further away. Police had trouble identifying her right away because her friends had waited days before reporting her missing. After that, Kimberly Swan was found. She was a worker at the Sly Fox, the same club that Lana Long worked at. But a few months before, she had enrolled in a vocational program to become a medical technician and had moved in with her parents to start to provide a better life for her one-year-old son. She had last been seen at a convenience store. Four days after her body was found, Bobby Joe Long had been arrested. So what the police were able to do was, one, look at Dodge Magnums, and she was able to tell them that it had this red interior. From there, they could look at who had made ATM withdrawals that night and find the two hotels and see what apartments could be around in that area. And they focused in on Bobby Joe Long. Well, I would think also looking at DMV records, who in the Tampa area, specifically that area, owned and drove a Magnum Dodge. When I think of them doing this, I think of it as Criminal Minds, where she's tapping and has the information in three seconds. Garcia. But yes, but this was 1984. So they were probably with pen and paper. Files. Files, just checking off names, trying to find a match. Yeah, old school. There was one last victim that's not always mentioned when you talk about Bobby Joe Long, and that's Artis Wicked. So she was estimated to be his first victim, and it's thought that she was killed back in March of 1984. She was a sex worker and had been picked up by Long. He had assaulted and raped, and it's thought that she was his first victim and that it had started as a sexual assault and that he wasn't satisfied by that, and then he strangled and killed her. And that was the first escalation. How many women did he kill in that eight-month period? So in eight months, 10 women were killed. And she was the first of the 10. Yes. So once the police had honed in on Bobby Joe Long, they waited because they didn't have any hard evidence against him besides the fact that his car matched, his apartment was in the same area, and that he had made an ATM withdrawal. So they waited for him to go into a movie theater. And at that point, the police went and looked at his vehicle. So they were able to see that the car did have three different tires and that they matched the tracks that were found at some of the victim's dump sites. They ended up arresting him for 
for the kidnapping and sexual battery of Lisa McVeigh because that's what they had the most evidence on. He signed a Miranda waiver and the detectives were able to then get a confession on the kidnapping and the sexual assault. Once that confession had been obtained, they did start to question him about the murders and his answer to start with was, I'd rather not answer that. But eventually they get a confession to eight murders in Hillsborough County and one in Pasco County, which was Virginia Johnson. In April of 1985, he's tried for Virginia Johnson's murder and is found guilty with a unanimous recommendation for the death penalty. So hers was separated out because of where she was found. So mm-hmm. she was found in a different county. It was a different court case. Hillsborough County was then ready to go to trial in September, but Bobby agreed to plead guilty to eight counts of first degree murder, eight counts of kidnapping, and seven counts of sexual battery. Separately, he pleaded guilty to the kidnapping of Lisa McVeigh, and the state retained the right to seek the death penalty in the Michelle Sims case, which they did obtain in a 10 to 2 vote. Now, luckily, they did get a 12 to 12 vote in the Virginia Johnson case because, as we saw with the Seth Jackson case, the Florida Supreme Court law changed and you have to have a 12 to 12 to get a death sentence. So the only death sentence that applied at that point was Virginia Johnson and the Michelle Sims case. They had to, I don't even think they actually resentenced him because he already had the death penalty in the other case. So Bobby Geelong had been raised by his mother. She had a lot of men that she had brought home and apparently he slept in her bed until he was 13 or 14. No. No, I'm not saying that's not true, but no. Just not a good idea. Not a good idea. He had quite a few head injuries when he was small. Once he was hit by a car when he was around five, he fell off a swing and hit his head. Just a slew of head injuries. But he seems somewhat normal. And he also had, what? what's the disease he had? Kleinfelter syndrome. Kleinfelter syndrome. So when he was a teenager, he actually had breasts. Yeah, it's a chromosomal condition that can affect the physical and psychological development, especially in boys and men, they can acquire female characteristics. So in reading your notes and kind of going through things, I didn't know a lot about Kleinfelter syndrome. So my understanding based upon what you researched, he was bullied a lot too, Mm -hmm. as a child. Yes, he was. And he was bullied a lot. But he did have a high school girlfriend who he actually ended up marrying. And things seemed to be going well. He was in the Air Force, I believe, for a while. And they had two children and everything seemed normal. But then he had this motorcycle accident where he had yet another head injury and he started to become one sexually aggressive even in the hospital nurses would say he would be tooting his own horn 15 16 times a day non-stop he was aggressive towards by tooting his own horn <laughs> sorry what what do you think i mean Trish? I'm, I'm gonna use the he was masturbating yes he was okay. masturbating and ooh. and <laughs> And he was abusive to his wife, so both sexually and just physically violent. When was this motorcycle accident? I want to say 81, 82, early 80s. So he had the head trauma as a child. He had the Kleinfelter syndrome. And now we have this major motorcycle accident he had in the early 80s. Yes. In one instance of abuse, he slammed her head on the edge of the TV and she ended up blacking out. When she woke up, she had to drive herself to the hospital to get stitched up. She came home that night while he was sleeping, loaded a double barrel shotgun, sat over him and pointed it at his head. And she sat and tried to pull the trigger and she says she just couldn't do it. To this day, she regrets not having pulled that trigger. Mm. 
because she says if she had, then it would have saved all these women so much pain. Do they think he went from being this very sexually aggressive, especially towards his wife, to murder? Or was there something that happened in between to bridge that? Oh, there was a bridge. So once they were divorced, he moves out. And it's at this point that the classified ad rapist becomes active in the area that he was living. It seems as if once he was divorced and out of the house, that's where everything unraveled even more because he didn't have that that base of control in having a family and a wife even if he was abusive to that family did he have children yes two two children so the classified ad rapist would look through classified ads and then go during the day when women were most likely to be alone because this was the 80s where a lot of times you had women that would be home during the day their husbands would be working and that's when he would go to the house so they were selling household goods or something along that line this wasn't like you think of the craigslist where you know people put out there looking for a good time give me a ring so this was more like hey we're selling a washer machine interested you know call blah 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 yeah it was a penny saver ad it was really you know we're selling our blender what whatever they may be selling and so he would go to the house and if the woman was alone he would ask to go to the bathroom pull out his rape kit kit and pull a knife on her force her rape her and then leave and how many rapes are equated to the classified ad rapist there are over 50 rapes at that time and the class and he stopped that type of attack when he escalated into murder rape murder rape murder yes so kind of like that escalation you hear about from the golden state Mm -hmm. killer who started out as a ransacker of homes then into a rapist and then into rape murder yeah It's very much that you you almost think of it as a classic progression into this. Bobby Joe Long, he did receive the death penalty for the Virginia Johnson case, and he was executed on May 23, 2019 at 6.55 p.m. with Lisa McVeigh in the front row, along with victims of the classified ad rapist and the families of other victims. Lisa McVeigh says that if she could have said last words to him, it would be, thank you for choosing me and not another 17-year-old girl. She explained that another girl may not have been able to handle it the way that she did. Lisa McVeigh is now a sheriff's deputy in Hillsborough County, the same county where she was attacked, and her main focus is working with children and teens. That's amazing. It is amazing. That's resilient. For her background to be a sexual abuse survivor, not, I mean, not once, but twice, and then to meet this guy who was murdering women to live and then be instrumental in his capture. Amazing. Amazing. And now she dedicates her life to helping kids that could be in the same situation that she was when she was a girl. So yeah, if there's any silver lining to this story, it is Lisa McVeigh and the shining example of a human that she is. Yes. Sometimes heroes don't wear capes. That's true. So an interesting side note on his execution date, May 23rd. Do you know that's the same date that Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were killed in a police ambush? I did not know that. I know. Yes, I totally looked that up. I don't know why. It just popped up and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So do we have any life lessons? Leave your DNA everywhere. If you're ever in a situation where you're being detained or kidnapped, be observant like this, like Lisa was, and leave your DNA everywhere would be my life tip. Yours? Mine would be if you sustain major head injuries, maybe follow up with your doctor and or psychiatrist. Yes. And it got me thinking, which it would be hard to actually see what the correlation is, but in the 80s, if somebody had 
a situation like this where there was a husband that was abusive and aggressive sexually, all of that, or having even just any sort of mental health problems after a head injury, I feel like there would be a lot more stigma around actually getting help for it, whereas now maybe less so. And there would be more opportunity to get help. So I wonder if the rate of violent crimes compared to the availability of mental health assistance. Do you know what I'm saying? I get it. You could be right. I mean, unfortunately, mental health treatment hasn't really gone up in terms of access people have access to. That's true. It's actually gone down. And we know now, at least in our country, that we have such a predominant mental health issue around depression, around anxiety. But yet treatment services haven't caught up in numbers in terms of available services for people that need it. So you might be right. I mean, had he been in the hospital and he was masturbating so much, they know this was not his norm. And maybe then they would have called in a psych eval for him. Perhaps something could have been done. I don't know. Or his wife could have pulled the trigger. But no shame, obviously. If you can't shoot somebody in the face, I know you're probably a good person. Correct. So that's all I have. That was interesting. Wow, that was good. So listen for us. We're, what platforms are we on, Maddie? So we're going to be on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you can get your, your normal podcasts. So please download us. Give us a nice five-star review. Give us some feedback as how we're doing. This is a, a work in progress. We're not professional by any sense of the word. So we're always looking for constructive criticism. Anything you want to add, Maddie? You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So Facebook is Criminal Discourse Podcast. Twitter is at Criminal Pod. And the Instagram will be in our show notes as well. Oh, great. Okay, so until next time, everybody, please stay safe out there. I'm going to add a little something different. I always say be kind, but I'm going to be like, hey, you see something? say something. So if you happen to be a witness to something or hear about something after the fact, don't be afraid to come forward, share what you know, especially if it's a violent crime. So until next time, have a great week and be kind. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.